Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Welcome back to the program again this week. Thank you for joining us again on the program as we continue to share the series that we are in the middle of on the book of Judges. This to me has been an incredible study. I, I love the fact that I've got time on the television program that many times I don't have when I'm in a preaching setting because of the limitations of time. But I can come here and teach in the studio and unpack a lot of stuff and get it recorded so that people can be blessed by it for, uh, you know, years in advance. And because they are good for my own personal study, it makes me really dig deeper because I've got time to really look into some things and really dig a little bit deeper. We've been unpacking the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, of course, we started out by telling you how that every book of the Bible is, uh, the key to it is somewhere near the beginning. Now, let me say before I even get into that, that if you've missed any of these and you're going to you're in this, this will be the third segment actually where we're talking about Deborah in the book of Judges. But if you've missed any of these, I really encourage you to go back uh, to our YouTube channel and watch them on demand. What's so great about YouTube and the internet anymore is more people are watching sometimes via YouTube and through our podcast than sometimes live television because you may not be there to set your DVR. But you can go back and watch these, and you can share them with people uh, across your social media platform. We encourage you to do that. You can sign up there uh, as a subscription to our YouTube channel. It costs you absolutely nothing. But what happens is, is when you uh, subscribe to our channel, we will send you, it, it automatically sends an email every time we upload a new program to our YouTube channel. And you can go back and watch them over and over again. We encourage you, you can go back and watch them uh, in a Wednesday night meeting. You can watch them, you know, in a home study group and then have conversations around these uh, programs because probably some of the stuff that we've taught over the past years will soon be written into curriculum for Bible colleges and you're going to get a great education through studying the Word of God with us. And I encourage you to do that. And the easiest way to do it, of course, is simply to go to my website. Right there it is on the screen. And in the upper right-hand corner of the opening page, there are icons. If you click on the YouTube one, it will take you directly to our channel. Same way with the podcast or the RSS feed. And it will take you directly to our channel. Because if you go to YouTube and you just put my name in there, I am all over there because I've preached so many places that people have uploaded videos that uh, you, you know, you're going to have to uh, sort through it to find my channel. But that's directly to my channel where you can watch these on demand. So I encourage you to do that and to watch them. Now, I want to come back and again reiterate without too long of review that each book of the Bible, the key is probably somewhere near the beginning where you see Joshua begins with Moses, my servant is dead. Arise now, Joshua, and take the people in. Moses brought you out. Joshua brings you in. Now the Hebrew word Joshua is the Hebrew name Yeshua, the word we translate Jesus from. So what the book of Joshua is about is a type and shadow a, uh, a, an Old Testament pattern or picture 
of what the transition looks like between Moses and Joshua. Moses brought you out with a rod. Jesus brings you in with a mercy seat. There's so many parallels that can be made through the book of Joshua, but it's about a return from bondage and exile and into a land that flows with milk and honey. And that land, that promised land, according to Hebrews 4, is not a piece of real estate. It's rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So when you open the book of Judges, the very next book, Joshua Judges, it opens by saying, now after the death of Joshua. Say it another way. Now after the death of Yeshua. Remember, Yeshua is the Hebrew name Jesus. So after the death of Jesus. So these in the New Testament, in the New Testament, when after the death of Jesus, he hands the kingdom to 12 apostles and said, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But in the book of Judges, there are 12 judges that he hands uh, the uh, assignment to of bringing judgment to the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And they are ordinary people full of human flaws and weaknesses. Just What's so encouraging to me about this book is they are people just like you and I. Sometimes we forget their humanity when we see the heroic things that they do through the power uh, that God gives them. But the, to me that's so powerful that they execute the judgment, and what they are doing is they are executing a judgment primarily because the children of Israel did not obey God and utterly get out of the land of, uh, the, of Canaan, everything God told them. They were willing to live with some things. They were willing to live with some enemies because they could tax them. And you see that God says, because of that, they will, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use them as thorns in your side until you drive them out. In other words, the stuff that we're willing to live with, even after we've come to know Jesus, are stuff that we need to execute a judgment against because it's not God bringing judgment on us in the new covenant. It is that the very deeds we do reprove us. In other words, there are repercussions to our actions. And the reason I believe Christian behavior is important in the New Testament is not because your behavior gets you to heaven, but it's because your behavior gets what's happening in heaven into your environment and to in your earth. And the whole point of the gospel of the kingdom is your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So each one of these were uh, enemies that they were willing to live with at some point until those enemies begin to overtake them, and then God would raise up judges. So when I'm thinking about these judges, I'm talking about executing a judgment that was exacted through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, we are executing what He accomplished in His finished work that belongs to us, that has been uh, judicially awarded on our behalf. And one of the primary scriptures I've used has been where he said in Psalm 1, I believe it is 149. I probably ought to go back and look at my notes. If I think it's Psalm 149, I would probably just check that just to be sure. But Psalm 149, where he says, singing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the congregation of the saints, let Israel be joyful in their king. Let them sing from the heights of Zion, let the sharp two-edged sword be in their hands. Psalm 149, yeah, Psalm 149. Let them sing aloud upon their bed. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. 
without a sharp two-edged sword being in their hand, to execute the judgment written. This honor have all of his saints. When I'm thinking about executing the judgment written, I'm not thinking about calling down fire from heaven. I'm talking about executing what is ours legally because of the death of Joshua or the death of Jesus. So we're enforcing what he's accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. This honor have all of his saints to execute the judgment written. And that judgment is not always negative. It is a judgment in your favor. What God is continually interested in, in this book of Judges, is bringing them back to a place of peace and a place where their enemies are at rest. But because they did not utterly get rid of these enemies, they were thorns in their side. And they, the scripture says in the book of Gen Judges, one of the primary scriptures says this, every man did what was right in his own eyes because there was no judge among them. In other words, it was a free-for-all until God would raise up judges. Now, I think it's incredible that this is a transitionary book between Joshua and Judges, and then you come in 1st, 2nd Samuel, the Kings, and the Chronicles, because the kingdom is what happens next. In other words, God is bringing peace through uh, what Jesus accomplished in His death, burial, and resurrection so that we can see ultimately the kingdom come and God set up His authority in our lives. Not a political kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. Now let me come back here, and we're going to pick up Deborah at least for one more segment here. And I'm going to read down through it. It said, When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord told them and sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera who dwelt in Herashoeth, Hagoyim, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time, and she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the, mount, uh, and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came to her for judgment. Now what I begin to share with you a little bit, is that Sisera's name, who is the enemy in this story, his name uh, literally means like to, uh, it, it has to do with war in our minds. To be, uh, let, me, let me just pull up my notes on it and I'll read them to you because it makes it a whole lot simpler to do that, uh, what his name actually means. Let me find it here real quickly. Hallelujah. Uh, let me see here. Sisera's name means meditation, a field of battle. To set in battle array, binding in chains, a sea of horses. The root word equals to leap onward or to onset. The thought for me is that this is dealing with the battle that rages in our minds. So we have a battle that rages in our minds. Sisera is a picture of our carnal mind. Last week I talked about how Deborah can be a picture of our soul because our soul is feminine in the Greek language. David said even, my soul shall make her boast in the Lord. So this battlefield that I'm talking about is not a military onslaught as much as it is a battle that rages between our ears. The, the, the imaginations that lift themselves against the knowledge of God. In other words, anything that lifts itself against what Jesus accomplished in His finished work is nothing but an enemy and a lying vanity, and we need to pull down 
these strongholds by applying the finished work of Jesus Christ to that. And so that this, this battle that rages between our ears is sometimes not just a battle in natural things, but spiritual things, and especially as it relates to being a, a battle between law and grace. Because remember, Deborah, when she's sitting here executing this judgment, is she's sitting underneath of a palm tree. And the palm tree, to me, speaks of the righteousness of God, because the Scripture said the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like the cedars in Lebanon. And when you put your confidence and you bring your soul and your mind to stay on Him and remain under that pine tree where you realize your righteousness is not volatile because it's not based on the law. It's based on the fact that He that knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God in Christ. And so they come to her for judgment, and uh, they sent and called Bar Barak the son of Abinoam, this is verse 6, from Kedesh to Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops to Mount Tabor? Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, I will go... If you will go with me, then I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I'm not going. <laughs> so she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, uh, the Kenanite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the Terebeth tree in Zanim, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that, Bar that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all of his church, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Hiroshoeth Hegoyim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, up, for this day the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And they routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all of his armor with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Hiroshim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, not a man was left. However, Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. Now this is what I think this is the coolest thing. He went to the foot of Jael, the wife of Hebar. Now Hebar is the root word Eber, where we get our word Hebrews from, but it literally means the crossers over. It was a word that means to cross over. So we have, uh, we have uh, someone here who is about to cross over. And I think it's incredible, even when you look at the book of Hebrews, that the book of Hebrews is about crossing over out of an old covenant and into a new covenant. And so remember, we're talking about what the death of Jesus has exacted for us. And the only way we're going to be able to cross over is to be able to recognize His finished work and be able to deal with this enemy that wars against our mind, that is fleeing and comes into the tent of Jael. And it goes on to say that she was the wife of Heber, the Canaanite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Canaanite. 
And Jael went to meet Hisser and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered with him, him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of, watch this, of milk, and gave it him a drink and covered him. Now I think that's significant, because here is a woman by the name of Jael. And she has this, this enemy that I, I said is between our ears. This carnal thinking, this warfare mentality. I think even as long as you are in a old covenant mindset, there's constantly conflict in you. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. I hope I die when he loves me. Am I righteous? Am I not righteous? Am I saved? Am I not saved? It's a double-minded man that's unstable in all of his ways. Go back and listen to the other segments I've dealt with on Deborah and review them. But this war goes on between our ears. But I think it is significant that when he comes to the tent of Jael, the Jael, he turns into her tent and he says, I am thirsty. So she didn't give him water. She opened a jug of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. Now, I think that's significant because the, when I think about milk, it says that those who need milk, the Scripture declares, are people who are not exercised in the word of righteousness. So one of the things that's going to help us put a nail in the head of Sisera is when we give him some milk to drink. In other words, when our mind is out of control and our faith, and even the scripture says, even if our conscience condemn us, God is greater than our conscience. Because when we are start to understand, as I shared with you in a former segment, one of the places where it talks about they had their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and, and other, state, other things in that list. But to have the conscience seared, the word seared there, is the, the Greek word katarizo, where we get our English word katarize. So having the conscience seared doesn't mean you don't feel bad about the things you did before. It means that you've stopped the flow of blood to your conscience. Because you said under touch not, taste not, handle not. They were forbidding in that context. So he's really talking about them going back up under legalism and law. And what that does is it cauterizes, it stops the flow of blood to your conscience. But the book writer of the book of Hebrews says that our conscience needs to be sprinkled with blood so that our conscience can be purged. Not so we don't feel bad about doing bad things, but so that we don't feel bad about drawing near to God, so we can draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And that follows the whole concept of Hebrews, the 10th chapter, where the scripture said that by one sacrifice, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified and that we were sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So when this carnal Sisera turns into your tent and says, you are not who God says you are, you need to execute a judgment and you need to give him some milk. But watch this, it gets better. And he said to her, stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquire of you and, and, and says, is there any man here, you shall say no. Then Jael, Eber's wife, took a tent peg <coughs> and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground. 
for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said, Come, come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with a peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of, of Canaan. Now let me just tell you something that I think is really powerful here, is that this word for peg, she took a peg. I mean, this dude, get the picture of this. She's just given this dude milk. He goes to sleep, and then she takes a tent peg, a spike, a nail. She puts it on the temple of this dude, and she drives that nail through this guy's temple. Hence, she nailed that dude. But here's what's powerful, and I don't know if I, I've got enough time to really unpack this in this segment, but I'm going to try to. It's it, that this word for nail is also the same word that's used in Colossians 2, verses number 14, where the Scripture says, having uh, nailed to the cross the handwriting of ordinance that was against us. So Jesus nailed the old covenant to the to tree. Now, I looked this up in Strong's Concordance, and this word is the verb proseleo. It means to nail. It's used in Colossians 2.14 in which the figure of a band or ordinances of the law is first described as canceled and then removed. The idea of the verb itself is not that of the cancellation to which the taking out of the way was subsequent, but of the nailing up of the removed thing in triumphant to the cross. The death of Christ not only rendered the law useless as a means of salvation, but gave public demonstration that it was so. And so when he nailed the law to the cross, he took the handwriting of ordinance that was against you. The weapon of the enemy is condemnation. It's the Sisera of your soul that comes to kill you and to try to talk you out of what rightfully belongs to yours, to you. Another place where this same Hebrew word is used in Deuteronomy chapter 23 Verse number 13, it says, when they came out of Egypt and they were coming through the wilderness, they had to know where are we going to go to the bathroom at? Well, the question, the answer to that is, where is the bathroom? The answer is, where isn't it? But when you've got 3 million people on a journey, there's going to be quite a little bit of dung, if you will. But here's the powerful thing about it. In Deuteronomy 13, he said, uh, he tells Moses, here's what you do about that situation. And he says, and it shall come to pass, I like how King James words it, it shall come to pass that when thou shalt ease thyself abroad, that you will go outside the camp and dig a hole and cover that which cometh of thee. And thou shalt have a paddle upon thy weapon, and you'll dig a hole, and you will dig it out, and you will cover what comes from thee. Now let me tell you that the word paddle upon thy weapon there is the same Hebrew word as nail here in the book of Judges. Now you say, well, how is that significant? He tells them because you've got to take it outside the camp, dig a hole, and bury that which cometh of thee, so that there be no uncleanness among you, so that when the Lord God walks in the camp, he does not see any uncleanness. Now let me tell you, you say, well, what has that got to do with anything? Well, they're trying to get rid of the dung. I think that's one thing really needs to be done a lot of in the American church, is we need to get rid of the dung. I can say it like, we just need to get rid of the crap. I'm just going to say it like that. There's a lot of crap in the game. 
And what he goes on to say here, let me tell you what Paul says. He said, well, if you want to hear my testimony, I was the chiefest of sinners. And what he calls the chiefest of sinners is in Philippians, the third chapter, when he says, I was a tribe of Benjamin. Uh, he said, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. As touching the law, I was blameless. But I count it all as dung that I might win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is a product of the law, but a righteousness which is a product of the faith of Jesus Christ. So the dung that we need to get out is we need to get away from what Paul called the righteousness that's a product of the law. We need to get away from a performance-based religious system because what happens is this word nail is the same nail that's used where uh, where uh, Thomas says, Jesus said, stretch forth his hands, he said, put your finger in the hole where the nails went. In other words, Jesus took all your dung. He took all the byproducts of your fist. He took your stinking thinking to the cross and watch this. He did exactly what Moses said they should do. He went outside the camp and dug a hole and buried that which cometh of thee. I think it's also incredible that in the book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah comes to uh, see the condition of the city, the first thing he does is comes to the uh, dragon well and to the dung port. And the dung port was just outside of the dung gate. And if you go and play the map of, uh, of the city of ancient Jerusalem over the city of Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified, Jesus was crucified just outside of the dung gate because what he did, did was he took all of the performance-based religious system, he took all the byproducts of your flesh, he took the nail, he dug it, he killed, crucified it, what Paul even called, I counted all as dung, my righteousness, my performance, my failures, this war going on between my mind, we need to apply this nail that Jesus was crucified, he nailed the handwriting of ordinance that was against you, God is not against you, he is for you. And he took it outside the city, he dug a hole, and he buried that which cometh of thee. And so I'm telling you that when you begin to realize that, you will realize that I can put a nail to this enemy of Caesarea between my mind because to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And sometimes carnally minded doesn't mean that uh, I just had a bad thought. It means I think I can do this on my own human effort, my sweat and my labor, and I think I can do this based on human performance, except what happens is, is I always fail and the law, which was good, stirred up in me all manner of concupiscence and literally slew me. We're in a new covenant. We need to take Sisera. We need to give him some milk and realize we're the righteousness of God. We need to take Deborah and keep her under the palm tree and get our soul and our mind and will and emotions in line with what God says in his word. Put a nail to it. Well, amen. We're out of time. I appreciate you tuning in this week. If you'd like to sow a seed into this ministry, please do it by going to the website and you will find a link there where you can uh, give via credit card or debit card through our PayPal portal. You can also sign up there to be a monthly partner if you'd like to or give a one-time gift. You can also send a check or money order to the address that will come on the screen or you can call the number that will come up on the screen and someone will take your call. If we don't answer, please uh, leave a message and, uh, and a number where someone can return your call because we don't man the phones 24 hours a day. But we do need you to sow a seed into the ministry. God bless you and thank you for your support.
I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.